All right. <clears throat> Thank you for uh, coming out to worship today. I know a lot of our church is very ill, um, myself included. I had a fever Tuesday through uh, Thursday, and um, I don't have a fever, so I'm not contagious anymore. But um, uh, hoping to make it through this without uh, coughing all over you guys, and I know that's what you want too. So let's go to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Everybody found it? Acts chapter 2. All right, so I'm going to read the first 41 verses, because that's what we're covering today. And then Woodley, next week, will preach on like the last six verses of the chapter. When the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven, and it filled the whole house where they were staying. They saw tongues like flames of fire that separated and rested on each one of them. Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were Jews staying in Jerusalem, devout people from every nation under heaven. When this sound occurred, a crowd came together and was confused because each one heard them speaking in his own language. They were astounded and amazed, saying, look, Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us can hear them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those who live in Mesopotamia, in Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the magnificent acts of God in our own tongues. They were all astounded and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But some sneered and said, They're drunk on new wine. Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and proclaimed to them, Fellow Jews and all you residents of Jerusalem, let me explain this to you and pay attention to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only nine in the morning. On the contrary, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And it will be in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all people. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. I will even pour out my spirit on my servants in those days, both men and women, and they will prophesy. I will display wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and a cloud of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord comes. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles wonders and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. God raised him up, ending the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. For David says of him, I saw the Lord ever before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. Moreover, my flesh will rest in hope because you will not abandon me in Hades or allow your Holy One to see decay. You have revealed the paths of life to me. You will fill me with gladness in your presence. 
Brothers and sisters, I can confidently speak to you about the patriarch David. He is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Since he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn an oath to him to seat one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah. When he said he was not abandoned in Hades, and his flesh did not experience decay. God has raised this Jesus. We are all witnesses of this. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord declared to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he testified and strongly urged them, saying, Be saved from this corrupt generation. So those who accepted his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 people were added to them. Z, would you mind showing the next picture? So there's a writer named uh, Jamie Smith who points out that when you row a rowboat, you sit in the boat, and in order to go forward, you look backward. Anybody ever noticed that? Maybe you've been in a rowboat before. To go forward, you have to look back. And that's what this series is an attempt to do. This series in the book of Acts is all about going forward by looking back. To learn from what we're calling the vintage churches of the book of Acts. Churches on dusty streets in Jerusalem and Antioch and Thessalonica, made up of disciples who gathered in synagogues, gathered in homes, gathered down by the river. It's the story of the first churches, these vintage churches. So to row the boat that is our church into the future, I'm convinced we have to look back. We have to look to the past, all the way back. And today, the passage that we're looking at takes us all the way back to the origin story of the church, the, the birth date of the church. The day the Holy Spirit began to create a new people that would bear witness to Jesus. Remember a couple of weeks ago when we kicked off this series, Jesus predicted that this would happen. He told his disciples, these 11 fearful men and 100 or so other people that were gathered with them, he said, you have to wait in Jerusalem till the Holy Spirit comes and gives you power to bear witness to who I am. And so then last week, Z preached on that period of waiting, kind of a, a very unique period in the church's history where they had to wait for that promise to be fulfilled. They had to wait for the arrival of the Holy Spirit. And that's what happens in the passage that we're looking at today. Jesus' promise begins to come true. Jesus' promise begins to be fulfilled, and the Holy Spirit comes to create a new people who bears witness to Jesus. I think it's interesting. We know that there's one God who's made up of three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They each have different roles. The Son's role, obviously, was to die, to atone for our sins, to defeat the devil through his death. The Holy Spirit's role primarily, is to come and point to Jesus. The Holy Spirit's job is not to come and 
make everybody fans of the Holy Spirit, although certainly he's as equally God as the Son and as equally God as the Father. But his role, especially in the book of Acts, is to come and form a people who will testify about Jesus. So the Holy Spirit comes and he's like, look back at him. Look back at him. The story begins, of course, in verse 1. It says, when the day of Pentecost had arrived, it was a Jewish feast, a Jewish festival. They didn't necessarily call it Pentecost. Um, they called it the Feast of Weeks and other things. And usually what they would do is they would sacrifice two loaves of bread, offer two loaves of bread in the, in the temple. Um, it was a, a way of symbolizing that the first fruits of your um, your agriculture and your, your harvest, and they, they were in an agrarian society, right? So they would, they would plant crops and then make stuff out of them. And so they, they took their first couple of loaves of bread and they would give it to the priest. They would take it into the temple and it was a, a reminder that everything that they had belonged to God. Uh, along the way, the Feast of Pentecost also came to be about uh, the celebration of the giving of the law. So the Jewish people were gathered to remember what happened at Sinai when God gave the Ten Commandments and the whole rest of the law in the Old Testament, when he gave the whole package to Israel there at Mount Sinai. And so that's what the people of Israel are doing here in verse 1. The day of Pentecost arrives, and the people of Israel, the people of Jerusalem, are celebrating this feast. They're baking their bread to bring their, their two finest loaves to the priest. They're about to celebrate the Ten Commandments. They're about to celebrate the law of God. They're about to remember what happened on Sinai. And so while all of Jerusalem is doing that, the 120 disciples are all gathered together in one place, probably the same upper room where Jesus had the Last Supper. And suddenly a sound like that of a violent rushing wind comes from heaven. It fills the whole house where they're staying. And they see tongues like flames of fire that separate and rest on each one of them. There's this spectacular sound. It doesn't say it's a mighty rushing wind. It says it sounds like a mighty rushing wind. Um, I, don't, I don't exactly know what the sound was. Nor do I know what it means when it says there were tongues of fire on top of everybody's head. Um, always happens um for um for lack of thanks bro um as far as i know it was real fire that came down uh on top of their heads um and uh, this is what they saw nobody really knows what that means though but that's what the text says so we get this spectacular sound we get this spectacular sight. We hear this mighty, violent, rushing wind. We see tongues of fire on everybody's head. So how would you have felt, right? You're with a group of 120 people. The person that you worship has gone back to heaven and has told you to wait. So you're waiting. You don't really know how long you're supposed to wait. You just know you're supposed to wait. And uh, you're waiting and you're waiting. And you're all together in one place, and all of a sudden, you hear this terrifying sound. And then you look around, and there's like fire coming from somewhere, and it like descends on everybody's head. Now, I don't know if you'd freak out, or if I would freak out. We might all have a collective freak out if that happened to us, right? But that's what happens here. And I imagine there's a lot of people who are simultaneously feeling nervous and afraid, but also like, okay, Jesus told us to wait for the Holy Spirit. We don't know what the Holy Spirit looks like. We don't really understand the Holy Spirit because there's not a whole lot of talk about the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament scriptures. So this is a new thing for us. I guess this is the Holy Spirit. And so... They hear the sound, they see the fire, and then it says <clears throat> that they start speaking in tongues. Verse 4, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different tongues as the Spirit enabled them. 
Now, how many of you have ever heard of speaking in tongues? Has everybody heard of that? Okay. So, um, you might have seen it on TV. might have experienced it uh, in a church that you were at. Um, I'm going to do my best to explain what it is from this passage. Forgetting what I've seen on TV. Forgetting what I've experienced in church. Just explaining it based on this passage. All right? Because this is my authority. So, the next few verses explain to us what it means that the Spirit is enabling them to speak in tongues. Verse 5 says, There were Jews staying in Jerusalem, devout people from every nation under heaven. We know from history that the Jews had spread out all over the Roman Empire. They had been dispersed. They were called Diaspora Jews. And many of them had relocated back to Jerusalem. Some of them came on pilgrimage and just ended up staying. And so that's what a lot of these people are here. And so they're Jews who grew up in other places. And because even though they're ethnically Jewish, they are culturally something else. They're culturally African, or they're culturally Greek, or they're culturally Roman, or they're culturally Asian. They are, they are Jewish, but they have spent their entire life somewhere else, and they speak a different language. They may speak Hebrew too, but they speak something else as their primary language. And they're dreaming. They're not dreaming in Hebrew. They're dreaming in something else. All right? And so these Jews are gathered, and all of a sudden, they hear this sound. There are these 120 people. I don't think they can see the tongues of fire on people's heads. I think just the disciples saw that on one another. But all of these Jewish people who are from all over the world are there in Jerusalem, and they're, they're there to celebrate the feast. And they hear these 120 people, and they're speaking a cacophony of different languages. And the people in verses 5, 6, and 7, it says they're astounded and amazed. And in verse 7, they say, wait, those people, that group of 120-so people over there, they look kind of odd. They're all just like gripped by something, and they're just talking really excitedly. Aren't they all the same culture, they're, they're all Galileans. That's what verse 7 says. How is it then that each of us can hear them in our own native language? The Parthians said, we're hearing it in our language. The Medes, that's people from what would be Iran, we hear it in our language. Those from Pontus and Asia from Libya, near Cyrene, which is northern Africa, Crete, which is a Mediterranean island, Arabs, all of these people that are described here, they are hearing this message in their own language. So the gift of tongues in verses 4 through 13 is all about the miraculous ability given by the Holy Spirit for God's disciples to bear witness about Jesus in a foreign language, a language that they did not know. Peter was a Galilean. He didn't know the languages spoken on the island of Crete. He didn't know the languages, he didn't know Italian that they spoke in Rome. But when Peter and the other men and women who followed Jesus into that upper room, when they began to speak in tongues, what it means is that all of a sudden, as they opened up their mouths, they could speak languages that they never knew. Now, I know people like Rachel know a few languages, right? How many languages do you know, Rachel? You know, like four or five, sort of, three? All right. So, wouldn't it be cool to just miraculously add one to the list? You're trying to take that college Spanish class? You're like, man, I just wish I would go in on day one and got it right? Or maybe you've ever been trying to communicate with someone here in New York City because it's such a diverse city and we have so many, I think there's like 300 languages spoken in Brooklyn alone. Um, and uh, every once in a while, it'd be really handy if I could just miraculously have this ability to know a language that I don't know. That is the gift of tongues in this passage. The Holy Spirit comes, and remember Jesus said, he's going to come to point people to me. He's going to come 
to help the church bear witness to me. And the first way I'm going to help them do that is I'm going to give them this miraculous ability to speak languages that they don't know. Because Jerusalem, especially during the feasts, Jerusalem, uh, people say that like a couple hundred thousand people would descend on Jerusalem for these feasts. So there are, there are people there from all over the world, right? We see that from the, from the passage here. And so the Holy Spirit's like, all right, this is a prime opportunity for this group of 120 people to bear witness to who Jesus is. But since they don't know the languages of all of these different people, I will perform a miracle. And so Peter and all the other 120, I imagine they, they, they just come out of the upper room and they're just so excited. They've heard this mighty rushing wind. They've got these tongues of fire and they just kind of spill out onto the streets. And there was probably a, you know, a, a buzzing street scene back then because there was, this, there was this festival going on. So everybody was out in the street. They were having this religious pilgrimage and festival. It was like, you know, we have that kind of stuff nowadays too. And so, so it would have been normal for them to be out on the street. And so they're out on the street and they're just talking and they're excited. And all of a sudden, they start talking in languages that they don't know. And it catches the attention of other people. And they, they, they see this group of people. And there's like, there's 120 people and they're just excited on the street. And they're saying all of these different things. And to the outsiders who were listening, some of them said, it just sounds weird to us. Those people must be drunk. And so Peter responds and has to articulate, we are not drunk. This is the Holy Spirit of God come back to that in a minute. Now, if that is different than what you have seen on TV about what the gift of tongues is, or different than what you have experienced, we can talk about that in our missional families this week, okay? Um, but in Acts chapter 2, speaking in tongues is simply the miraculous ability to proclaim the gospel in a language you do not know. And the Holy Spirit came to help the church bear witness to Jesus. And so the first thing he does is he gives them the gift of tongues so that they can bear witness to Jesus. So Peter's audience, the people that he starts talking to in this moment, the people that are overhearing him, they are from all over the world. I think this has a lot of implications for the church, for how we, we think about how we do even things like missions. So there's a guy <clears throat> recently deceased. I think he passed away last year. His name is Lamin Sana. He's from Gambia. Uh, and uh, he's kind of unique in that he is a recognized scholar on both Islam and Christianity. Um, he was raised in a royal uh, Gambian family. Uh, his tribe is people, his father, were prominent Muslims, and he eventually came to faith in Christ, and then wrote a lot of scholarly books about both uh, Islam and Christianity, and worked for many years as a professor at Yale. And as a scholar of Islam and Christianity, Santa points out something really interesting and significant. He says that the Quran is not meant to be translated. That's why you always hear it in Arabic. I was wondering if he was like really, if that's really true. I visited a mosque recently with a group of missionaries. It was up in uh, Williamsburg, I think. We walked in, took off our shoes to show respect. We sat down and we engaged the imam in conversation. And while we're engaging him in conversation, there was like a 12-year-old boy who wanted to become Muslim. And so they're like, first step, you have to learn the Arabic alphabet. Because if you want to be Muslim, you have to know Arabic. Because that's the only way to read the Quran. And Santa says the difference between Islam, which says you have to come and embrace this culture in order to find God. Christianity, from the very beginning in this passage, takes root in every culture. So we translate the Bible every time a missionary goes to a new people goes to a new country, goes to a new tribe, we translate the Bible into that language. And we don't say, you have to come be like us. You have to come sing our kind of songs. I know 
churches and missionaries have, have um, messed that up at different times throughout history. But when missions is done right, we don't say you have to come be like us and sing our songs and embrace our culture and read the Bible in our language. No, we say the gospel can take root in your culture. Because that's what happens on day one. The church from day one is a multicultural people, and then they just start scattering all over the world. Because from day one, they're from Phrygia and Pamphylia. They're from Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene. They're Cretans and they're Arabs and they're Romans and they're Parthians and they're Medes. They're from all over. And so God doesn't say to you to make it really personal. He doesn't say, hey, because Stephen is white, you have to become white to be part of the church. Or because Woodley is Haitian, that you have to be Haitian to be part of God's family. Or that you have to sing our songs or speak our language. You see, God's people were never meant to be like that. It's a major difference between Christianity and Islam. The gospel takes root in every culture. And so churches look different in every culture and in every era, right? So Peter hears these people reacting to this cacophony of various languages that are spoken. And so then he preaches a sermon, first ever sermon in the history of the church. I don't know how long it was, um, but he preaches a, a sermon out there on the streets or maybe on the, in the temple courts. He stands up with the 11, raises his voice in verse 14, and he proclaims to the crowd, <clears throat> fellow Jews and all you residents of Jerusalem, let me tell you what's going on. These people aren't drunk. It's only nine in the morning. Who gets drunk at nine in the morning? That's what, that's what he's saying. He says, on the contrary, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And what's interesting then is Peter, he basically spends his entire sermon focused on three passages from the Old Testament. This is one of the reasons why we try to take the Old Testament really seriously at our church. And usually when we, when we finish a New Testament book, the next book that we're going to preach through is an Old Testament book. We always alternate back and forth. I know it can be popular just to stay in the New Testament, but the early church took the Old Testament very seriously. Peter's entire sermon is based on the Old Testament. That's his Bible at the time, and his sermon makes no sense if you don't take the Old Testament seriously. And the first passage that he looks at is from Joel 2, where it talks about the last days. Now, how many of you have heard a sermon or something about the last days? Anybody? All right. You might have read a blog, watched a movie, read a novel. <coughs> There's all kinds of stuff. Peter said, here is what Joel said would happen in the last days. And here is how it has come true today. Verse 17, and it will be in the last days. This is a quote from Joel. And it will be in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all people. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. I will even pour out my spirit on my servants in those days, both men and women, and they will prophesy. Peter said, look, Joel predicted this hundreds of years ago. He said that in the last days, something new would happen. The Spirit of God would be poured out upon God's sons and daughters, and they would prophesy. They would see visions. They would dream dreams. Peter said, this is what's happening today. The Spirit has come and ushered in the last days. Um, sometimes Christians get weary of... Um, Christian talk about whether or not we're living in the last days. I think Peter's answer to that question is, of course, we are living in the last days. We live between the time of Pentecost and the time of Jesus's return. The church is a last days people. There is not a moment in time since this story when the church has not existed in the last days, because from the Christian view of history, there was all these previous days, and then there was the last days that started at Pentecost 
When Jesus from heaven sent the Holy Spirit to earth to form a new people, a last day's people who would bear witness to Jesus. And that's the moment that we have lived in now for about 2,000 years. So if you ask me, are we living in the last days? I would say yes. I would say that the people 2,000 years ago were also living in the last days because that's how the Bible views it. That's the, that's the terminology of Scripture. We are a last days people. Remember a couple of weeks ago, I talked about how we live in the time between the times, the time of Christ's first coming and the time of Christ's second coming. And so <clears throat> that's, it's more of the same idea here. We're in the last days. And Peter said, in the last days, Joel said that the spirit would be poured out to form a people, to bear witness to the Messiah. And they would dream dreams. They would see visions. They would prophesy. This is what's happening today. Now, he also quotes some verses that it doesn't sound like they happened on the day of Pentecost, verses 19 and 20. Joel also said, I will display wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and a cloud of smoke. <clears throat> the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord comes. Usually in the Old Testament, when the prophets of God are, are predicting the future, they didn't always make a clear, sharp distinction between Christ's first coming and Christ's second coming. They just talked about the king coming, right? Then in the New Testament, we gain some further understanding that the king comes twice. And so the king comes once, and then the king comes again. So what I think is that verses 17 and 18 from Joel are a reference to what happens at the, at the beginning and throughout the last days. And 19 and 20 are yet to happen. This is something that will happen perhaps at the end of the last days when Jesus returns. The important thing is that in verse 21, Joel and Peter, who's quoting Joel, says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now remember, the Holy Spirit is empowering Peter and he's preaching in I don't know how many languages here and the other 11 are probably preaching simultaneously too because it says he stands up with the 11. So there's like these probably multiple sermons and conversations going on and there's thousands of people listening to this. And Peter wants everybody to know that it is the name of the Lord that saves people. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And that word Lord is important, and he builds on it as he keeps going. He says, fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth, he's like, I'm telling you the identity of this Lord. He was a man <clears throat> attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him just as you yourselves know. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. God raised him up, ending the pains of death, because it wasn't possible for him to be held by death. And then he goes to a second Old Testament passage from Psalm 16. And he quotes David, who said, I saw the Lord before me, my heart is glad, my tongue rejoices, and here's why. Verse 27, because you will not abandon me in Hades. That's death, the realm of death. You will not uh, abandon me in death or allow your Holy One to see decay. You have revealed the paths of life to me. So David said in Psalm 16, I am confident, I am hopeful, you're not abandoning me to death. And Peter says, hey, look, you're all good Jews. You've, you've been on pilgrimage to David's tomb. You know where it is. You know where his bones are. I can confidently say to you about the patriarch David, he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. But since he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn an oath to him to seat one of his descendants on the throne 
And so he spoke about the resurrection of the Messiah. Peter said this, this passage from Psalm 16, it's not just about David, it's about more than David. It's about the one who comes as a greater king than David. It's about the descendant of David who comes to rule. And it was about this one who was not abandoned in Hades, not abandoned in the realm of the dead, and his flesh did not experience decay. Peter said, David, hundreds of years ago, predicted that the Messiah would rise from the dead and thereby be proclaimed Lord. Verse 32, he says, God has raised this Jesus. We're all witnesses of this. Remember back in verse 8 of chapter 1, the whole point of the whole story of Acts, the whole point of being the church is to bear witness to Jesus in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And this is, this is why, uh, Z preached on this last week, this is why the apostles are like, we have to replace Judas. We need someone who can bear witness to the resurrection alongside of us. And so that's, that's what we're doing. Verse 32, he says, God has raised this Jesus. We, together, we're all witnesses of this. We saw him alive. We ate fish with him on the beach. We've hung out with him. We are bearing witness to the fact that God has raised this Jesus. And since he is exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and he has poured out what you both see and hear, he said, this is what David was predicting hundreds of years ago. This is what Joel was predicting hundreds of years ago, that a new people would be formed by the power of the Holy Spirit to bear witness to who Jesus is. And then he goes to his final Old Testament passage in verse 34. He says, it was not David who ascended into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, there's a lot in this verse, and there's a lot in the Psalm 110 where this quote comes from. But when you read Psalm 110, it's not long. It's like six or seven verses. The whole thing is about the one called Messiah. The whole thing is about the king. And that's what the word Messiah really means. It means king of Israel. And Peter says it wasn't David who ascended into heaven, but it was the king who ascended into heaven. And he's like, guess what? I saw that happen. I was standing on the Mount of Olives, and I witnessed the king return to heaven in fulfillment of everything that David predicted. And then he hits pay dirt in verse 36. The whole point of the sermon is to get to this. The whole point of Peter's sermon is to get to this moment. He says, therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. What is he saying? Well, the word Lord means king, basically. The word Messiah means king. The difference is that Messiah would have meant king of Israel. Lord would have meant king of all the nations. You see, there was a guy who lived in Rome named Caesar who called himself Lord. It was very popular back then to say, Caesar is Lord meaning he's the emperor, he's the king over all the nations. And then the Jews had their understanding of a king who would reign in Israel, would reign in Jerusalem, and they felt like he would be a descendant of David because that's what God had promised in the Old Testament. And so Peter looks at Old Testament passages, the Joel passage in particular, talks about this idea of God's universal lordship. And then the passages from David from the Psalms talk about God's kingship over Israel. And what Peter is saying here in verse 36 is he's bringing them both together. Yes, Jesus is the king of Israel. And yes, Jesus is the king of all the nations. Let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of all the nations. He's the king of all the earth. This was a daring, bold, audacious claim. It was a claim that 
would have ruffled feathers in Jerusalem to say that there was a king, a proper descendant of David, who was supposed to be on the throne, who had been killed 40, 50 days prior. That would definitely have upset a lot of people. It's also a politically dangerous message. Ford got back to Rome, but there was this group of people trying to influence all of these nations, people from Parthia and Egypt and Cyrene and Crete and people from Arabia, people from all over the Roman Empire that there's this new Lord, not Caesar, but somebody else. This was a dangerous message, a subversive message that Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is proclaiming because he is proclaiming essentially an alternative politics. He's saying, no, Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is. The Holy Spirit comes to bear witness to Jesus. Specifically, the way that happens is he forms a people who bear witness to Jesus. Justo Gonzalez talks about how Christians have a dual citizenship because we're in the midst of the reign of the kingdoms of this world, and yet we submit to the king of kings who is sort of a king in exile on the throne, but not here. And so we have a dual citizenship. The people are challenged when they hear this, when they hear this message of the kingship of Jesus, that he's the king of Israel and he's the king of all the nations. They're like, what should we do? They're, they're pierced to the heart. And so they ask Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? And so Peter replies, repent and be baptized, each of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter says, turn to God. Embrace Jesus the King. Repent, it means to change your mind, to change your heart, to change your ways. It's like you were trying to go uptown, and you're like, no, I need to go downtown. I have to get off the train and get on a different one to go downtown instead of uptown. You can't just think about it. You can't just be like, I'm riding uptown, but I know I'm supposed to go downtown. It'd be a good idea to get off and change the train. It's not just thinking about it. It's not just some mere mental idea or good feeling you have about Jesus. He says, you repent. It's a change of mind that leads to a change of heart that leads to a change of actions. Embrace Jesus, the King, and the way that we know that you've done that is you should get baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. He says, when you do this, you will receive the Holy Spirit, just as we all have. He calls Christians to get baptized, and it says in verse 41, those who accepted his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 people were added to them. Now, I don't know where they had the water to baptize 3,000 people. Um, I'm not sure. I have no idea. I read a commentary this week that was trying to explain some different ways they could have done it, and there, there are logistically, there are some ways they could have done that. Um, probably would have maybe taken them all day. I don't know. But it says that they were baptized, 3,000 people. And the church, all of a sudden, is born. And you've got these people from all over. Most of them are ethnically Jewish, but culturally, they're something else. They're Roman, they're Egyptian, they're Arab, they're Cretan, they're Macedonian. They're all of these different things, right? But they're united about one thing. They have suddenly been gripped by the Holy Spirit who is knitting them together to bear witness to Jesus, specifically to the kingship of Jesus. He's the king of Israel. He's the Lord of all the earth. And that's what they're learning. That's what they're embracing. That's what they're accepting. So they go under the water and they come back out to say, yeah, I'm with Jesus. And I'm with Peter and the other apostles. I'm with this people. I'm with you. 
Now, the aftermath of that is what Woodley's going to preach on next week because the Holy Spirit comes and he forms a people. And the entire book of Acts is about how he is forming this group of people to bear witness to Jesus. But I want to suggest a couple of things that we should do in response to Peter's sermon. First, we need to believe in the gospel. I think a lot of times we can take the idea of Jesus being the king out of the gospel. But I think in this passage, it's pretty central to the idea. Peter goes to all of these Old Testament passages to show that Jesus is the Christ. Sometimes we just think of the word Christ as um, Jesus' last name. It's not his last name. It means Messiah, which means king of Israel. And then Lord is king of the nations. And so Peter's whole point in going to all of these different passages is to say, hey, in the Old Testament, it said that the Messiah would come. Yes, and he would be the king of Israel and the king of all the earth. And the one who is that king is the one who has died and risen and ascended to heaven. And he, from the throne, has dispatched the Holy Spirit to shape us so that we will be witnesses to him. The first step for us is to believe the gospel. And then to be baptized and follow Jesus. That's what Peter said in response to the question, what should we do? He's like, well, first off, just get baptized. You'll receive the Holy Spirit, and then you'll start following Jesus. And then the passage that Woodley is covering next week kind of fleshes out more how that happens. I think, obviously, if we're going to respond to Peter's sermon as Christians, if we are already Christians, I think we need to take seriously the idea of submitting to Christ the King. Jesus is your King. So the question is, do we live as if he is our King? When you're all alone, when you're spending your money, when you're grappling with your fears and uncertainties, do you act as if Jesus is your king. You know, in, um, we don't live in a monarchy, we live in a democracy. Um, but in old times when people had like true monarchies, you, you really had a, a healthy respect for the king or the queen because they had ultimate authority, ultimate power. So when the, when the king comes in or the queen comes in, you, you pay homage to them. You, you pay tribute and respect. Jesus, we need to recover the idea that Jesus is the king. And the fact that he's the king of our lives means with my life, I have to pay homage to him. I have to pay tribute to him. I have to live every day as if the king is with me. I know he's not physically present with me, but he sent the Holy Spirit from heaven to be present with me every day. We live as if we really are children of the King. And then four, I think we just allow the Holy Spirit to shape us into the people who bear witness to Jesus. And we do that together. This is a communal activity. The Holy Spirit in Acts 2 begins to form a people. And all of Acts is the story of how this people gets formed. There's a lot of winding roads and, and, and surprises on this journey. But it's all about a people being formed so that they can bear witness to Jesus. And that's why we're here. That's why you're here. God did not save you just so that you could go to heaven when you die. God saved you to be a part of a family that together grows and discovers what it means to bear witness to Jesus. With our words, with our actions, with what we do on Sunday, and how we live Monday through Saturday. You know, the Holy Spirit is still here. He's in our midst. 
He's forming us, even now, to be a people who bears witness to Jesus. So I think we have to ask ourselves, how does our shared life together bear witness to Jesus? Do our lives as individuals throughout the week point people to Jesus? The Holy Spirit brought us as the church into existence so that we could do that. If we're on the rowboat, we're trying to go into the future, face new challenges as a church, as the people of God in 21st century New York. I'm convinced that the way to face the future is to look back, propel the boat of our church forward into the future by looking all the way back to be a vintage church. And as a vintage church, we will be formed by the Holy Spirit to bear witness to Jesus, the one whom God has made both Lord and Christ. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are grateful for your work in us. In particular, Holy Spirit, I want to thank you for your work to form us to be a people that bears witness to Jesus. And I pray that you would cause us to be a people who are submissive to that work, that we have hearts that are tender when you are challenging us, when you are speaking to us, that we would be people who would obey that we would be people who would submit, that we would be people who band together so that you can accomplish your will through us so that we can be a vintage church that bears witness to Jesus. Amen.